Hello, welcome to Hidden History, an odyssey through time. I'm your host, John Rodriguez, and this is the fifth episode of the podcast, Through Thick and Thin, The Turbulent Life of Henry Johnson. William Henry Johnson, born around July 15, 1892, died July 1, 1929, commonly known as Henry Johnson, was a United States Army soldier who performed heroically in the first African-American unit of the United States Army to engage in combat in World War I. In 1918, Johnson fought off a German raid in hand-to-hand combat, killing multiple German soldiers and rescuing a fellow soldier while suffering 21 wounds in an action that was brought to the nation's attention by coverage in the New York World and the Saturday Evening Post later that year. In that same year, the French awarded Johnson with the Croix de Guerre with star and bronze palm. He was the first U.S. soldier in World War I to receive that honor. Johnson died poor in obscurity in 1929. There was a long struggle to achieve awards for him from the U.S. military. He was finally awarded the Purple Heart in 1996. In 2002, the U.S. military awarded him the Distinguished Service Cross. Previous efforts to secure the Medal of Honor failed, but in 2015 he was posthumously honored with the award. The United States Armed Forces remained segregated throughout World War I as a matter of policy and practice despite the ongoing effort of black leadership to overcome that discrimination. When the United States entered the Great War, the slogan of the NAACP became, quote, first your country, then your rights. A common optimistic belief among African Americans of this time was that if they served bravely in the United States military, they would in turn gain the respect and equality that had been thus far absent. However, the United States War Department was unwilling at the time to be a beacon of social change. Secretary of War Newton D. Baker claimed in a letter dated November 30, 1917, that his policy was to, quote, discourage discrimination against any persons by reason of their race. But then he added, quote, at the same time, there is no intention on the part of the War Department to undertake at this time to settle the so-called race question. It's interesting to note that this letter was sent to Emmett J. Scott, Special Assistant for Negro Affairs to the Secretary of War and the son of former slaves. As a result of this mindset, practices that limited equality and opportunity in civilian society were carried over to military society. A number of African-American enlistees were turned away from the war effort, mainly because there were not enough segregated black units to take them in. Those who managed to successfully enlist faced segregated transportation to segregated military bases and regiments that were rarely deployed to much more than tasks of support and maintenance. Once overseas, it wasn't uncommon for an all-black unit to be, quote, lent to one of the Allied armies. Supposedly, the unreported and unofficial reason for this was to pacify vocal white U.S. soldiers who refused to fight alongside black troops. This is how Henry Johnson and the rest of his American unit ended up fighting under the French 4th Army on the Western Front. This would eventually lead to a violent night in May 1918 that would change Johnson's life forever. Johnson's story, hidden history that has remained long forgotten, is the story of an American patriot intent on keeping alive the spirit of liberty and those unwilling to see past the color of one's skin for the common good of a nation.
It is now commonly agreed upon by historians that William Henry Johnson was born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. When it comes to the year of his birth, there is some confusion mainly because it's possible that Johnson himself may not have known the exact date of his own birth. However, when Johnson registered for the draft, he claimed he was born on July 15, 1892. Whether or not this was true, this is the date we will go with for this episode. Johnson preferred to go by his middle name of Henry and only occasionally used his full name for formal purposes. When he was a teenager, Henry and his family moved to New York and settled in Albany. He worked various jobs as a chauffeur, soda mixer, a red cap porter at Albany's Union Station, and a laborer at the Albany Coal and Wood Company. On April 6, 1917, the United States declared war on the German Empire, nearly three years after World War I started. Over the next year and a half, millions of Americans served overseas and supported the nation's war effort at home. Their contributions helped win the war and shaped both America and the world for generations to come. By the guidelines set down by the Selective Service Act, all males aged 21 to 30 were required to register to potentially be selected for military service. On June 5, 1917, a young man from Albany, New York named Henry Johnson registered for the draft. Unknown to him, his life would never be the same again. Johnson was assigned to Company C, 15th New York Colored Infantry Regiment, an all-black National Guard unit that would later become the 369th Infantry Regiment. The 369th Infantry Regiment commonly referred to as the Harlem Hellfighters, was originally formed in 1913 as the 15th Infantry Regiment in the New York Army National Guard. The infantry was one of the first few army regiments to have black officers in addition to an all-black enlisted corps and was one of the few black combat units during World War I. With the 370th Infantry Regiment, the 369th was known for being one of the first African-American regiments to serve with the American Expeditionary Forces during World War I. Upon arrival, Army leadership assigned soldiers of the 369th Infantry to non-combat roles. They performed manual labor such as unloading supplies from ships and digging latrines. Many white soldiers treated their black comrades poorly, with some refusing to be stationed in the same trenches with African Americans. Despite a desire to keep American units together, Major General John J. Pershing detached the 369th Infantry to serve with the French on April 8, 1918. The 369th Infantry, detached under the French 4th Army's command, arrived on the frontline trenches in the Champagne region of northeastern France on April 15, 1918. Johnson and the rest of his unit were relieved to be free of the supply and service tasks of the past months and ready to join the fight. The French needed more men and welcomed the reinforcements. For the first few weeks on the front lines, the 369th saw little combat. The official New York National Guard Register states that on May 1, 1918, Johnson was promoted from private to sergeant. Then the night of May 15, 1918 arrived.
On the night of May 14, Henry Johnson was serving on night sentry duty with a fellow soldier, Private Needham Roberts. Johnson thought it was, quote, crazy to send untrained men out at the risk of the rest of the troops, he later told a reporter, but he told the corporal he'd, quote, tackle the job. He and Roberts weren't on duty long when German snipers began firing at them. After the shots rang out, Johnson and Roberts lined up a box of grenades in their dugout to have ready if a German raiding party tried to make a move. Just after 2 a.m., Johnson heard the, quote, snipping and clipping of wire cutters on the perimeter fence and told Roberts to run back to camp to let the French troops know there was trouble. Johnson then hurled a grenade toward the fence, which brought a volley of return gunfire from the Germans, as well as enemy grenades. Roberts didn't get far before he decided to return to help Johnson fight, but he was hit with a grenade and wounded too badly to do any fighting. Although he was injured, Roberts wasn't useless. Flat on his back, he continued to hurl grenades into the advancing German troops. But there were too many enemy soldiers, and they were coming from every direction. As he took bullets to the body, Johnson continued to fire his rifle into the darkness. He kept shooting until he shoved an American cartridge clip into his French rifle and it jammed. At that point, Johnson had just fired his last bullet point blank into the chest of a German. As the German fell, a comrade jumped over his body, pistol in hand, to avenge his death. There was no time for Johnson to unjam his rifle, and so he swung the firearm and struck the oncoming German right in the head. Although he was seriously wounded, Johnson then sprang to the side of Roberts, who the Germans were attempting to capture. It is important to remember that those soldiers fighting for the United States were unanimous in the opinion that death was to be preferred to a German prison, but Johnson was of the opinion that victory was to be preferred to either. As Johnson charged to the rescue of his fellow soldier, he unsheathed his bolo knife and jumped on one of the Germans burying the blade of the knife up to the hilt through the enemy's head. Quote, Each slash meant something, believe me, Johnson later said. Quote, I wasn't doing exercises, let me tell you. He disemboweled another German, dropped the lieutenant, and took a pistol shot to his arm before driving his knife between the ribs of a soldier who had climbed on his back. Johnson managed to drag Roberts away from the Germans, who retreated as they heard French and American forces advancing. The two weary Americans continued to hurl grenades, and one German soldier was actually blown to pieces by a lucky grenade thrown by Johnson. When reinforcements arrived, Johnson passed out and was taken to a field hospital. By daylight, the results were clear. Even after suffering 21 wounds in hand-to-hand -hand combat, Johnson has stopped the Germans from approaching the French line or capturing his fellow soldier. Johnson walked away from that battle with wounds to his left arm, back, feet, and face, most of them knives and bayonets. He had killed four Germans and wounded an estimated 12 to 24 more. Newspapers around the world would later call this event the, quote, Battle of Henry Johnson. Quote, there wasn't anything so fine about it, he later said, just fought for my life. A rabbit would have done that. The New York National Guard annual report of 1920 stated that, quote, He, Johnson, killed one German with rifle fire, knocked one down with club rifle, killed two with bolo, killed one with grenade, and, it is believed, wounded others. While Johnson and Roberts were recovering from their wounds, 
Their unit, the 369th Infantry Regiment, was undergoing 191 consecutive days of enemy fire. Five days after the Johnson Roberts ordeal, Major General John J. Pershing, commander of the American Expeditionary Forces on the Western Front during World War I, wrote a memo to officials in Washington, D.C. Dated May 20, 1918, the memo reads, quote, Reports in hand show notable instance of bravery and devotion shown by two soldiers of American Colored Regiment operating in French sector. Before daylight on May 15, Private Henry Johnson and Private Roberts, while on sentry duty at some distance from one another, were attacked by German raiding party, estimated at 20 men, who advanced in two groups attacking at once from flank and rear. Both men fought bravely in hand-to-hand encounters, one resorting to use of bolo knife after rifle jammed and further fighting with bayonet and butt became impossible. Evidence that at least one and probably second German was severely cut, third known to have been shot. Attention drawn to the fact that the two colored sentries first attacked continued fighting after receiving wounds and despite of use of grenades by superior force and should be given credit for preventing by their bravery the taking prisoner of our men. Three of our men wounded, of whom two by grenades, but all are recovering, and wounds in two cases are slight." End quote. The rules of the American Expeditionary Force forbade press releases naming specific units or soldiers, but the rules did not apply to the 369th or other black units, and on May 21st, the quote, Battle of Henry Johnson, hit the front pages of major newspapers across the nation. Johnson earned the nickname of, quote, Black Death, as a sign of respect for his prowess in combat. Henry became the first U.S. soldier in the Great War known by name to the American public. Three days later, Stars and Stripes, an American military newspaper, published an extensive article describing the German attack. The article pointed out the fact that the French high command praised Johnson and Roberts, saying, quote, The American report is too modest. It appears that the blacks were extremely brave. Along with praise, the French also awarded both men the Croix de Guerre. Henry's had a star and a bronze palm, the highest award for valor in France. One month after Armistice Day, the French government awarded the Croix de Guerre to 170 individual members of the 369th, and a unit citation was awarded to the entire regiment. It is worth noting that within that same article, the commander of the two Americans was quoted as referring to the young men as, quote, chillin', a term that was a play on the way African Americans in the southern United States pronounced the word children. Many years later, it was discovered that Johnson's commanding officer, Colonel William Hayward, had written a letter to Johnson's wife shortly after the attack by the Germans, and it had been printed in the September 4, 1918 Congressional Record. Quote, Your husband, Private Henry Johnson, has been at all times a good soldier, of fine morals and upright character. To these admirable traits, he has lately added the most convincing proof of fine courage and splendid fighting ability. 
I regret to say that he is at the moment in a hospital, seriously, but not dangerously, wounded. The wounds having been received under such circumstances that every one of us in the regiment would be pleased and proud to trade places with him. Hayward then goes on to describe some of the battle details to Mrs. Johnson before ending the letter with, quote, Some time ago, the great general placed in my hands the sum of 100 francs to be sent to the family of the first one of my soldiers wounded in the fight with the enemy under heroic circumstances. Inasmuch as these boys were wounded simultaneously and both displayed a great heroism, I think it but fair to send each one half of this sum. Accordingly, I am enclosing New York Exchange for the equivalent of 50 francs. I am sure that you have made a splendid contribution to the cause of liberty by giving your husband to your country. And it is my hope and prayer to bring him back to you safe and sound, together with as many comrades as is humanly possible, by care and caution to conserve and bring back to America." End quote. On November 11, 1918, after more than four years of horrific fighting and the loss of millions of lives, the guns on the Western Front fell silent. Although fighting continued elsewhere, the armistice, or formal agreement, between the last remaining opponent, Germany, and the Allies was the first step to ending World War I. The global reaction was one of mixed emotions, relief, celebration, disbelief, and a profound sense of loss. The Treaty of Versailles, the peace treaty that ended the state of war between Germany and the Allied powers, was officially signed on June 28, 1919. On Wednesday, February 12, 1919, the Swedish-American liner Stockholm sailed into New York Harbor. As they passed the Statue of Liberty, the 369th Infantry Band, under the direction of the only black officer in the regiment, Jim Europe, struck up the Star-Spangled Banner, and all on board trooped to the rail and saluted Lady Liberty. Johnson had been overseas from December 1917 until his discharge on February 14, 1919. It must have felt great to finally be home. That same day that the Stockholm arrived in New York, Johnson was brought forward at a huge New York press conference to address the crowd. His story appeared in newspapers across the country the next day. One particular article written in New York City's The Sun can be found on our website. A victory parade was held on February 18, 1919 at 11.26 a.m. on Fifth Avenue at 23rd Street in Chelsea. The crowd along the route was estimated at 250,000. Unable to march because of his injuries, Johnson occupied the place of honor, riding the parade route standing up, holding a bouquet of white and red lilies in a 1918 Auburn touring car. One person in the crowd shouted, looks like a funeral, Henry, them lilies. Funeral for them Bosch Germans, boy. Sure, a funeral for them Bosches, Johnson shouted back. Unfortunately, Johnson's post-war life remains as murky as his earliest years. He reportedly received disability payments from the government as well as medical care, but it's unknown to what extent that supported him. It is known that Johnson had to have a metal plate inserted into his left foot due to wounds received during the war and a scar stretched over his lip. 
The following information about Johnson's life has been composed from a number of sources in order to complete his story. It is said that Johnson was paid to take part in a series of lecture tours. One night in St. Louis, Johnson allegedly revealed the abuse that black soldiers had suffered during World War I, such as segregation and white soldiers who refused to share trenches with blacks. The reaction on the stage and in the crowd was fierce. It is said that a white lieutenant in attendance, Charles Fearing, a man who was still in the service and wearing his uniform, defended Johnson saying, quote, the Negroes were hit more from behind than they were in front. Fearing was basically saying that the black soldiers were sniped at by their white comrades, which brought the crowd to its feet in anger. Johnson was publicly accused of inflaming racial tensions and soon afterwards, a federal warrant was issued for Johnson's arrest for wearing his uniform beyond the prescribed date of his commission. But since Johnson was actually within that limit, the warrant was voided. Another bit of information that is hard to come by in the case of Henry Johnson is his married life. Two female names pop up in Henry's life, Edna and Minnie. Edna was mentioned by Johnson in a newspaper article that was published on February 13, 1919, while the name Minnie comes up in a letter written by Johnson's commanding officer, Colonel William Hayward, shortly after Johnson faced the Germans. It is also the name Minnie that appears later on Johnson's death certificate. She is listed as his wife and the person who furnished the information provided. To sum it all up, Johnson's life was not easy after he returned home from World War I. He may have been married twice in his life, once to an Edna and then to a Minnie. As for children, your guess is as good as ours. It was once believed that a man named Herman Archibald Johnson was the son of Henry Johnson. Herman even stood in for his father at a 2003 ceremony awarding Henry Johnson the Distinguished Service Cross. However, after further research was done leading up to the senior Johnson's Medal of Honor, it was discovered that Henry was not Herman's father. At that point, Herman had been dead for about a decade. Johnson's health was never the same after the war due to the severity of his 21 combat injuries. Johnson's inability to hold down a job eventually led him to alcoholism and his wife left. By the early 1920s, Johnson had contracted tuberculosis and had to be hospitalized and treated at Walter Reed and other veterans hospitals. Henry Johnson died on July 1, 1929 of myocardia and was buried with full military honors at Arlington National Cemetery in Arlington, Virginia. Johnson was posthumously awarded the Purple Heart in 1996, the Distinguished Service Cross in 2003, and the Medal of Honor in 2015 for his actions in battle. On a final note, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. describes Sergeant Henry Johnson as, quote, one of the five bravest American soldiers in the war. And after hours and hours of extensive research in preparation for this episode, we here at Hidden History have to agree with Mr. Roosevelt. There are many other Americans whose heroism is still unacknowledged and uncelebrated. So we have work to do as a nation to make sure that all of our heroes' stories are told here at Hidden History, we are doing our best to highlight honorable stories that have been buried in the sands of time. So please, stay tuned. There's a lot more to come.
Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Each episode of Hidden History will explore a story that has been hidden in the pages of history and needs to be told. Pictures, newspaper clippings, and links to external articles relating to a particular episode will be available on our website. Thanks again for listening. I'm John Rodriguez, and this has been Hidden History, an Odyssey Through Time.